Well, last night about 9.30 when I was putting the finishing touches on this sermon, well, who am I kidding? I put the finishing touches on this sermon at 9.30 this morning. But anyway, at 9.30 last night when I was midway through, I ran over to McDade's before they closed to get a payday candy bar and a couple of bottles of water. And I ran into a friend, a Fondren Church friend, and we caught each other and we're talking. And I said, hey, you're in town and you're going to be at church tomorrow. And he goes, well, I'm actually leaving at 3 a.m. to drive to North Mississippi to go deer hunting today. Um, and I said, hey, man, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, you'll come to church tomorrow. And he said, man, look, I love you, but I'm not going to feed your sheep. I'm going to kill a deer tomorrow. And uh, so if you see Ryan Willis uh, later, just say something to him. <laughs> Ask him if he killed a deer and why he skipped church. But, uh, but Ryan's great. He'll listen to this on podcast, I know, because he's good like that. But he just said, Robert, I'm excited about 2020. I'm very excited about the plans that we've unveiled. And even though he's skipping church and shouldn't, uh, I, I, I hope that he can rub off on us just the investment we're making to transform the gym into a community center. It's been a little slower than we've wanted. But don't you believe, some of you know this, this is my kind of life story. But the good things, the rewarding things are often slower and harder, just take longer and require more. And th that's been the process here. But we're super excited. And instead of some incrementalism, we're jumping into it. And so I'm excited about that and hope that you are. And you'll consider being a part. I want to start this morning uh, our Advent series just two days shy of our Christmas Eve service. We'll all be back here. Uh, join us, invest and invite some people. Going to be an amazing service uh, in about 52 hours right here. Let me start with this thought bomb. I'd like to drop it on the screen and then let it sit with you for a moment. Being in the Christmas season and being in this Christmas spirit is not the same thing. The Christmas season, as you know, is some blocks on your calendar. It's a, a stretch of a month or so. It seems like it gets longer every year, doesn't it? The Christmas season in this age of extreme commercialization. But Christmas season, being in the Christmas season is not the same as being in the Christmas spirit. You can be in the season without being in the spirit. And we are, and a pastor, I feel the weight of this to bring truth and grace to people's lives, to my own life, because before I preach to y'all, I preach to myself. And after I preach to y'all, I go back there and get on my knees again and talk about how I need to preach to myself what I just told y'all. And then I have wife and kids at home to remind me to preach to myself what I just told y'all, right? But here's what I know. The Christmas spirit, we're inflicted with a sentimentality. And when the sentimentality doesn't match the reality, we can be left with a casualty in our spirit, in our heart, the sentimental nature, the sentimentality of the season says uh, a bright Christmas tree, decorated presents under the tree, elaborate dinner with festive setting on the table, stockings on the mantle, shopping at the mall. This is the sentimentality of the season, but the reality can be the kids are sick and the couple is fighting and family is in town and the walls are paper thin and you can hear them fighting between the walls on the other side of the walls. And the thought, the reality is joy to the world, peace on earth. Jesus is born. I hate you. And this can be our reality, the opposite of the sentimentality. And so this morning, the last few weeks, we have, John Wood and I have shared the scripture with you straight, straight to the heart of the Christmas story in Matthew 2 and Luke 2. 
And I want us to look again at this from the prism. If you, if you have a Bible, we're going to look at several passages, but Luke 2 is the place to go. If you, uh, if you brought a Bible and are excited about turning there, Luke 2, just one passage I'll have you look down at, but it will, of course, be on the screen. But I want to put up a word, and I want us to see the Christmas story in the, this 30 minutes that we have together in this message through one word, okay? It's one word. You may or may not like it. It's this word. Let's say it together. One more time. One, two, three. How is yours? How has it been? Mood. Uh, did somebody boo out there? Let me give you, a, let's, let's work off of a, a definition and then another thought bomb. Remember our first thought bomb was that be, being in the Christmas se- season and, and the Christmas spirit, it's not the same thing. Mood is a predeposition or tendency to have a certain kind of outlook or emotion. Moods, uh, the experts say, I read a lot about it this week, studied it, got a little more confused than I was before I started reading and studying on it. But mood, of course, involves emotions, but it's a little deeper uh, than that. It's a, it's a predeposition. It's a tendency to have a certain kind of outlook or emotion. And this is important. Moods or moodiness is deeply related to our spiritual condition. Don't miss this. Too often, too many times as a husband Pastor, father, leader, I've dismissed a mood that I am in as an unspiritual thing that I have a right to. And Jesus said he came to give us life, an abundant life, a life that would overflow. And he taught us these things that we'd have joy and that our joy would be complete. It as well would overflow. There would be an abundance of it, not a scarcity of it. And it would affect us. You see, when we get right and Jesus does a work with us vertically, things start taking shape horizontally in our lives. Jesus never, never had the two dichotomized, always together. And so think about this, let it weigh on you for a moment. It could be convicting, but mood or moodiness is deeply deeply related to our spiritual condition. Now, when we think of mood, I think rightfully so, we think on the surface, we think good mood or bad mood. You don't need to do any deep study to realize that a good mood, people are joyful and they're grateful and they're gracious and they're generous. Uh, People who are in a good mood hear a sermon in a good way. You guys in a good mood today? How's the sermon going? Bad mood people are negative and irritable and stressed. And they hear, you know, there are people who come and could be in a bad mood and they hear the sermon differently than someone who's in a, a good mood. By the way, I can tell a lot of times when you're in a bad mood. And there's, I mean, you could have anybody up there preaching, the great skilled orators of our day and you wouldn't be moved because you're in a bad mood. It's really, I'm invested in the sermon now. Like I want you guys to get in a good mood. Don't, don't you want churches to be led by people who are in a good mood? I want greeters to be in a good mood. I want the preacher and those who teach and lead small groups to, to be in a good mood. I, I want us to be a church where Jesus captures us and it really does affect our mood. Mood or moodiness is directly related to our spiritual condition. Several months back, I attended a funeral of a longtime childhood friend of mine, his father. And at the funeral, uh, I was reflecting on his life. And my longtime childhood friend's father was a moody man. He would yell a lot. I was at their house some. And I remember him yelling at me. I mean, how can you yell at little Robert Green, right? He would yell at us and certainly at his family. And my friend 
would always wonder when his dad would come home from work. Would he get grumpy dad or less than grumpy dad? And at this man's funeral, I I didn't have a part in it. I was in the congregation, but I couldn't help to think, this is so sad. It's so sad to think about the family that this man might have had. It's so sad to think about the kind of relationship with his kids he could have had. You see, a mood, it is a predisposition or a tendency to have a certain kind of outlook or emotion. And it is not always so shallow as we think it is, good mood, bad mood. It's deeply related to our spiritual condition. So for a moment, let's consider this idea of mood in the Christmas story. And let me say this real quickly, for just for our growth, for our instruction. When you were a child, you could cry and whine and act like a baby, and the world would revolve around you. But when you're an adult, when you cry and whine and act like a baby, the world runs from you. Are you with me? So some of us need to grow up. It's not working anymore. So our mood, our disposition, our tendency to have a certain outlook or emotion is a spiritual thing. It's deeply connected to your spiritual life. Let's consider some characters that John and I have taught about that you already know about in the Christmas story. Let's consider the first, the, the, um, the Magi, Matthew 2.10. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Were they in a good mood or bad mood? Good mood. Let's consider the angels, Luke 2.10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Good news, uh, good mood or bad mood? Good mood. Let's consider the shepherds. They probably didn't smell as good, but the shepherds returned. This is Luke 2, 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which we were just, which were just as they had been told, Luke 2, 20. The shepherds, good mood or bad mood? Let's consider Mary. And Mary said, Luke 1, 46, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit, what? Rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary, good mood or bad mood? How about Elizabeth, her cousin? got to have some cousins in the family, right? Got to have some cousins over for Christmas. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Was Elizabeth in a good mood or a bad mood? Herod, Matthew 2, 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi King Herod good mood or bad mood let's go with furious mood furious mood a lot of disorders underneath the surface but think about it for a second this man had all the power this man had all the money This man had the ability to alter so many of his life circumstances because of the money and the power and the kingship. This man, let me put it simply, should have been one of the happiest people in all of Israel. And he's the one in the story who's in the bad mood. Herod, we've taught here over the last couple of weeks and and years past, maybe you know this, but he... Historians debate whether it was 11 or 12 wives, but he had a bunch of wives. And the only one that he allegedly loved, well, he grew paranoid about her because he saw her as a threat, a threat to the throne. And paranoia, extreme paranoia grew in King Herod, and he had her killed. 
He killed a son of his, probably his favorite son. Later, killed a couple of more of his sons. The man who had the power, the man who had the money, the man who had the ability to alter his circumstances on his behalf, the one who should have been among the happiest people in all of Israel, he was the one in the foul mood. Consider Luke 2.19. I can't tell you how much I love this truth, but Mary, many of you have heard this. This is what I want you to leave with today. Sermon's not over. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Contrast this girl with this powerful man. She didn't have any power. She did not have any money. Y'all know about Jesus' socioeconomic status? Y'all dialed into that? She didn't have really any ability to alter her circumstances. And her circumstances were not good. But you see someone who treasured and pondered. She pondered these things and she treasured them. I'm drawn to that reality. When we go fast, eat fast food, have shallow relationships, and don't take time to do this, we miss. She treasured, she pondered, she treasured. Brings us to a third point I want to share with you about our mood. As a rule, your mood will tend to reflect what you habitually ponder and treasure. I was out of sorts a few weeks back. I was looking for insight I was trying to maybe hide some of my dysfunction and I got real with some Christian friends here and my mood was low and I was discouraged. It can happen to me from time to time. Any, anybody else? And I needed something to, to be altered, but I realized that for a stretch of a couple of weeks, I was ignoring some of the things that have gotten me dialed in to my spiritual center and to being oriented to love and learn from and follow Jesus to come to Him when I'm weary and burdened and heavy laden and finding rest. And I wasn't, I, I was faking it and going through the motions. I was on autopilot. To go back to that, let me tell you, the worries that had gripped me were driving me. It's true for all of us. But what you habitually ponder and treasure, that's going to that's gonna be, for the most part, what your mood tends to be. So I want to quickly, real quickly, give you three things to help you form and shape your mood, the joy and truth of the Christmas story as our backdrop. The first is this. The first is, be curious about Jesus. Look at what it says in Luke one twenty nine, the same Mary who pondered and treasured these things in her heart, look what it says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, God was doing amazing things in her life. She was visited by an angel. Extraordinary things were starting to happen in her life. That's just what God does. But notice it says that she was troubled and she was trying to discern. So let me speak a truth over you today. I've needed it time and time again in my own life. And for some reason, churches don't do well at preaching this. This is not a sermon that says, go treasure and ponder alone. I'm telling you today to go and be troubled 
and try to discern. Some English versions of this Greek New Testament passage, it tells us that she uh, was greatly troubled and she was filled with wonder. She, she was seeking to know answers. I want to say to you today that it's so much better to be a thoughtful, open, skeptic, or questioner than it is to be someone just drifting on autopilot. And we come and we, we say words and we sing songs and we go on autopilot. And there's something, just this chronic dissatisfaction just percolating underneath the surface. And the refrain can be, I've heard this before. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know this. And we're losing our wonder and we're losing our curiosity. I'm challenging you today. Be curious about Jesus. Do you know the people that you care about? You're curious about them. You want to know them. You want to express to them. You want to talk to them. You want to find out about them. If you care about somebody, you're curious about them. Be curious about Jesus. Last month, I read for the first time Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christmas. Some of you have heard of Lee Strobel. He was an investigative, award-winning investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune and is one of the more towering apologist of our day, a defender of the faith. And he writes prolifically. He's written books, uh, The Case for Christ, The Case uh, for the Resurrection, The Case for Easter, The Case for Faith, The Case for Christmas. Babylon Bee wrote an article recently that Lee Strobel is writing a book called The Case for Cases. But I love this, this, this book that I read last month, The Case for Christmas. And it helps me to develop my own curiosity for Jesus. You know what's unique about the Bible is that it was written by eyewitnesses or people like Luke, who was a doctor, but in the first century was also like an investigative journalist, where he was interviewing those who were eyewitnesses, looking deep into it. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christmas, talks about 48 prophecies about himself that Jesus fulfilled, 48. And his statistical analysis and probability, he asked the question, what would be the chances for one human being to fulfill 48 pr prophecies like this, the nature of these, about himself? And he estimates that it's one in a trillion, 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 trillion. To be curious about Jesus, his life and his history and the prophecies and the teachings and what he is all about. Did I bring some books up here? I didn't. I'm, this is going to be awkward. Excuse me. What's up, Wesley? This is a book called Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. Finding answers in Jesus for those who don't believe. And I read this work, and this man is, in all likelihood, uh, he's a, also an award-winning journalist for the U USA Today, but he writes, and I think you know, he's probably not worshiping at a religious institution today, but he's so curious about Jesus, and his curiosity is inescapable. He wants to live, and he wants to learn. Kristen Powers of USA Today, you see her on CNN talking about the impeachment of Donald Trump and many other things. She writes, in a book rich with meaning for believers and non-believers alike, this author offers insightful analysis of, of insightful analysis of American culture and makes a uniquely compelling case for the transformative nature 
of Jesus. Another writer, Jonathan Merritt, this is an important book, brilliantly subversive and extraordinarily helpful. This gift is for any of us in search of a sun around which to orbit our lives. I love this. Jesus, his influence, the magnitude and scope of his personhood cannot stay in religious walls. It is not tribal, it is global. And how far be it from us to sit here on autopilot without a curiosity to think more deeply about Jesus. I want to challenge you today to be curious about Jesus. I said I would be quick. The second thing, count it joy in your problems. Now, you're going to have problems, and this week, you're going to have Christmas problems. You're not going to have enough time. You're not going to have enough money. You're not going to have enough energy. If you got time and money, you're not going to have the energy. Some of you don't have enough time, money, or energy, all right? I'm glad you're at church today. You come to the altar when we open it up. Like, you're going to have Christmas problems. Anybody going to dispute that? You're not going to dispute that. You're going to have problems. In fact, let's be clear. Check this passage out in Acts 14, 22. I'll read the first part. Strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. It says this, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Look, I own this myself, but pastors need to be much more clear because prosperity theology is running amok. We must enter through many hardships Go through that to enter into the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 So that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. Every book on destiny, every best-selling book, you're destined for? Read my best-selling book. You're destined for what? Something about your best life. But let me drop the word of God on you. We are destined for trials that can so unsettle us. You will have trouble in the Christmas story. I don't know if your problems this Christmas season or time, money, energy are all above or unmentioned, but in the first Christmas story, the one that matters, in the first Christmas story, they had problems. Joseph had problems. Mary had problems. Jesus had problems. Jesus' family had problems. You notice that about families? Families are great. Nod your head if you think families are awesome. If you, if you love your family, just nod your head. They're hoping y'all are on the front row. You love your families are awesome, but families, because you're related to each other, you're interrelated, there's collateral joy and damage. Like, if there's a problem for one in a family, there's a problem for others, right? Some of the greatest burdens I know in the room are parents burdened for their children or grandchildren. Jesus' family had problems. You ever thought about that? And James, just about three to four decades later, he would write what you've heard before in James 1-2, count it all joy. I plagiarized number two from him, James 1-2, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's what James would write. And he was there. He was there that Christmas. He was with Jesus. He later believed after the resurrection That resurrection thing kind of seals the deal, doesn't it? And he would write that you will have problems. So to be a person whose mood can be affected, 
you only go through, as, as I thought at this funeral a few months ago, you only go through, you get one go through in this life. What kind of mood do you want to primarily, predominantly characterize your life? Be curious about Jesus and count it joy in your problems. Here's what I do sometimes. It's because I'm getting older and a little out of kilter, maybe a little crazy, but I think it's healthy and I recommend it. Talk out loud. Be careful where you are, but talk out loud. Talk to your problems. Look at your problem over there and have a conversation with it. And say, hey, problem, you are real and you have unsettled me, but I am no longer going to let you unsettle me. Now, by the way, if Jesus wants to redeem that, I, I think he does, but if he wants to deliver you out of that, I hope he does. I would pray to that end. But in so many ways, that problem is going to vex you. It's going to hang around you. And what do you do? Talk to it. Talk to it and say, look, can you, just as you believe in gravity, if you believe what God said is true, if you believe that one day the earthless, earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over it and what was dark and formless and void, God brought light and life and he, he, it took shape. And among his creation, in fact, at the apex of his creation is you and me and we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you believe that God is the creator and that he created you and he's got something for you and his eye is on the sparrow and you know that he watches you and that surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. That he has given you everything you need for life and godliness and nothing will separate you from the love of Christ and that all things work together for good. If you believe that, that the greatest victor of all, death, no longer has a sting. Because he's overcome the grave and he's granted victory to you. If you believe that, if you believe that your story and the pain that you're going through is this present trouble, it's momentary light affliction and will be one day, you'll know it by the eternal weight of glory where you will be a worshiper with every tribe, tongue, and nation. If you believe that to be true, that should affect your mood. And I want to tell you today, it has an effect on mine. And so I talk to my problems and tell them what is true and it's truer than any problem that I'm going through. So be curious about Jesus. Count it joy in your problems. And thirdly, commit to letting God grow you into a more loving person. 1 Corinthians 13, many of us know, it's some of the greatest poetry ever written. It tells us what love is. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't boast. It's not proud or rude or self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It delights in evil, rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Listen to what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that love is a feeling. And it doesn't say, hear me, some of us, you get it principally, but at your experience of how you're living, you're very misguided. But we tend to say, God, I'll be more loving if you bring more lovable people into my life. Now listen, if you pray that prayer, you got to go out there and trade your spouse in. You got to find a new girlfriend or boyfriend and you need to, you know, you need to trade out. Right? Because everybody I got in my life, man, I love them, but sometimes they're not lovable. And I know they say that about me. I know they say that about me. Don't laugh too loud on the front row. 
here's the thing. God doesn't want you to pray, God, I'll be more loving if you bring more lovable people in my life. He wants you to say, God, grow me into a more loving person. So think about this. As I quoted rapid fire, 1 Corinthians 13, here's my thought. Love is the acquisition of character. Love is you growing as a person, learning to grow and adapt and change, and letting God grow that in you. This summer, Susan, I took our vacation. We had Colorado written on the kitchen calendar on the wall. A couple of our younger kids were in the kitchen. They interpreted Colorado as a family vacation. You should have seen the look on their face when they realized that they weren't going. It was just us, and I wouldn't have it any other way. But we were in Colorado. We went to the place we met. We spent a few days in Denver. We went to, to Boulder. We went to Fort Collins. We went to Estes Park. But we had met in Fort Collins and spent most time there because I'm just sentimental and sweet. But I, I noticed as we were uh, just the two of us, like I would get up and go running, and Susan would do her thing, and I'd text her, you know, halfway through the day, hey, you want to meet for lunch? And I'd go, I love independent local bookstores, no matter what city I'm in, I go to those, and I can spend hours in those independent booksellers. And I noticed that um, our relationship had changed. And at first I thought, hey, what's wrong? Because when we were dating coast to coast, we would call each other, and we would talk all night on the phone. That we had conversations, we talked seven or eight hours. That's a, like a full work day. I don't know what we said. <laughs> Susan talks a lot. But now we don't talk quite as much. And listen to me, that's okay. There's growth there. It's a different love. It's not a perfect love, but it's a love that is matured. It's a love that now we know, hey, what got us here is not going to get us there, and character becomes more and more important. But love ultimately is the acquisition of character. How you doing? Two things, this whole sermon is here, but two things about love from what Paul said in early follower of Jesus. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Moody people, miserable people hold on to resentment and bitterness, their pride and their stubbornness. Yes, they do. They rehearse and react what has been done wrong to them. Hear me now. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't say love keeps no record. In fact, I would tell you today, love keeps a record. It just doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love remembers the gifts that you are to be grateful for. Love remembers the qualities and people that you admire, respect, and want to be like. Love remembers what you ought to savor, those moments of joy. Love remembers injustice that you can have a part in doing something about. Love remembers suffering that you can help alleviate with a healing balm. Love remembers, love keeps a record. It just doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Another thing, love is not irritable. That's one of the translations. This is not a small word. This sabotages relationships. Do you know I'm convinced? I, I know marriages are a private matter. And I know we have been through a lot in this room. I'm the product of divorced parents, parents who divorced after 27 years. I know folks who were so irritable that you really couldn't live with them. So understanding that your mood or moodiness is directly related to spiritual, your spiritual condition, this is important. And Paul is saying to the early church in a multi-ethnic world of trying to connect people of different races and places, he's saying, hey, we need to learn to get along because we're different. 
than each other. And love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. It doesn't hold on to things and let those things dictate what your destiny, your ultimate destiny is. There's a story. One of the things I love, by the way, about Fondren Church is we have several folks that I know personally who are in recovery or have been in recovery, and I see your chips of sobriety. We rejoice with you. I, I know stories of the people that you let in your life, your small group that you let come alongside you and rejoice in your journey. There's a parable, maybe, um, I bet everyone in recovery has heard this, maybe some of you. It's a parable, a parable that is widely used for people with addictions. And the story, this parable goes like this. It's a story of, of, of addicts who are, they're on a boat called recovery, sailing toward a place called sobriety. And there's a woman named Mary who's standing on the shore and she missed the boat. And they are, as the boat goes away from the shore, she's right on the edge of the dock and they're yelling to to Mary, dive in and swim, dive in and swim. Come to us, dive in, Mary, dive in and swim. Mary, you can do it, you can make it. And she dives in and she swims. They notice that she begins to, to go under, close to drowning. And it becomes apparent that Mary, in this parable, in recovery, that Mary who missed the boat, who's trying to catch the boat that she was holding on to a rock. And all those on the boat cheering for her say, Mary, drop the rock. Mary, drop the rock. Mary, drop the rock. And she thinks to herself, why would I drop the rock? The rock is, it's a part of me. What would my identity be without the rock? The rock makes me feel superior to those who've done me wrong. The rock is her resentment, her bitterness, her moodiness, her pride, and her stubbornness. It's become who she is. The rock is her excuse for being poor, poor, pitiful me. But in a moment of moral clarity and sanity, she drops the rock. The parable has her getting to the boat, making it. And what, what do all the people on the boat of recovery sailing to the place called sobriety, what do they do? They cheer for Mary. And as the parable goes, there's someone else who missed the boat and they cheer for him. Same scenario, he's about to go under and they cheer for him, but who's the loudest person saying, drop the rock, drop the rock, it's Mary. Drop the rock in the Bible. Dozens and dozens of times over, the word rock is used. Moses in a prayer in Psalm, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy 32. Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. Remember, it was an ancient day. They didn't have all the modern things that we could use for what is powerful and strong and unchanging. They had rocks. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. He's a God of truth and without iniquity. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He's higher than us. He's better than us. He is the rock. In the Psalms, the psalmist says, my soul finds rest in him. He brings me my salvation. He is my salvation and my rock. Jesus tells his own parable about a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And the psalmist would also pray, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. To ponder, to treasure, to have Jesus affect you is to let go 
of your rock of resentment and bitterness and moodiness, pride and stubbornness, and cling to the rock, the one who can bring you higher. What's your mood? What's your disposition or tendency that affects your likely outcome or emotion? Real quick for recap, one, two, three. Mood is a predisposition or tendency to have a certain kind of outlook or emotion. Mood or moodiness is deeply related to our spiritual condition. Thirdly, as a rule, your mood will tend to reflect what you habitually ponder and treasure. What do you need to let go of? What do you need to cling to? And then next, be curious about Jesus. Count it joy in your problems. Commit to letting God grow you into a more loving person. As our team makes our way up to lead us in our clothes, I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. And as you are, a quick, quick pastoral comment. This time of year, more than other times of year, people ask me about stocking stuffers or gifts or books that I'm reading or that I would recommend. And I, if, um, if you wouldn't think I was crazy, I'd do a few cartwheels up the aisle to tell you about this book called uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And if you want to read a book this Christmas, I would recommend this. It's written by a pastor in Portland that I really admire, John Mark Comer. Our college students are gone, but there's a whole section of young people on Sunday morning sitting here that love this pastor, John Mark Comer. But he wrote write this book. It's a quote from Dallas Willard of The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I would really, really recommend this if you want to grow in treasuring and pondering in seeing Jesus affect your mood. Father, bless this time as we close. God, I pray that we would be confronted with the reality that we can be in the Christmas season, but not be in the Christmas spirit. And that we are people of feeling and emotion and circumstances happen to us. But what has been done is greater than anything that can happen. Lord, we clean up this Christmas story, make it neat and tidy, but it's messy and it's hard and problems were everywhere. And in the midst of poverty and obscurity, you come. And Christmas is ultimately the good news of the gospel. Let us receive it. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you stand today and all around the room, I would love for you to not leave early, but to stay with us to sing this song aloud with Lauren and the team. I want to encourage you today. To maybe push your pride, push aside your pride, and this altar is open. If you want to come and you want to kneel, this altar is open. Let it be an altar to, to just visibly, tangibly seek the Lord today and offer Him this concern. Maybe it's a joy, whatever it might be. We would also love to pray with you down front. Let's be obedient in the few minutes.